0: Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. He's a serial entrepreneur who, since 1997, has founded or co-founded five startups, including a training company, a social network analytics company, an international clean water charity, a gourmet spice traders, and most recently Blockmark Technologies, a high-tech digital certificate company. Since early 2018, he's been exploring NFTs or non-fungible tokens, and is considered by the NFT collectors community as an OG after creating and launching Blockmark Gems with his business partner, Dr. Adrian Burden, or as I like to call him, episode 24. Prior to this, he spent the 90s sailing across the Atlantic, surfing around the world and working for Outward Bound in Scotland, Wales and South Africa. He is Tom Alcott. Hello, Tom.
1: Hi, Dan. Pleased to be here. Thanks How for are you having doing? me. How yeah, good, <laughs> good. Well, Very thanks
0: for coming in. You're a busy man. By the
1: sounds of it. Uh, I think we're all busy. Yeah, Yeah, that's
0: true. That's true. But uh, no, I appreciate you coming over and uh, recording this chat. It's
1: a pleasure to be here.
0: And hearing more about you. So uh, first of all, uh, best websites for people to find you, blockmarktech.com.
1: Blockmarktech.com or Blockmark Gems as well. is one of our NFT sites. Um, Yeah.
0: And you've got your personal website, tomalcott.com, which has got a bit of uh, interesting history
1: yeah yeah <laughs> i am one of many tom alcott's on the internet um but i managed to, uh, to snaffle the uh the domain fairly on so yeah where did you get that uh years and years ago now it's just been in, <laughs> in the attic um and i get it out occasionally and look at it and wonder what to do with it but yeah, yeah.
0: it's nice to have uh, a few little bits of information on there, though isn't it because i went on there and read every block that you've got on there and uh, it was just good to sort of know a bit more about you. Really. Yeah,
1: I think sometimes uh, in business people, LinkedIn can be sort of one dimensional and most people have a history or have other interests outside of business as mm. well and it's quite interesting to, to have a sort of platform to share that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You, you, it's when you start finding out those things about people that you actually just, you feel much more connected to them, don't you? Yeah,
1: like, yeah I think uh, the, one of my favourite themes is, um, uh, is ordinary lives or ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And okay. very often, you know, the little old man walking down the street will turn out to have been a World War I <laughs> submariner in the Gallipoli campaign or something. It's always surprising that kind of the backstories people have. You yeah, yeah. often, you don't assume, you just assume it's the little old lady or a little old man. But it's yeah. uh, quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, I saw one of those like silly little like YouTube shorts or something the other day, and uh, they were going around asking. He asked this elderly gentleman. He said, "Do you remember this particular football game? It was like round five of the Premiership. You know, I don't know. Who, I can't remember who it was. You know, Liverpool versus someone or other. The score was this, this, and this. And he said, Do you remember? Uh, do you remember anything about that game?'" And he said, "Yeah, I do." He said, oh, yeah, what do you remember? He said, well, I was the goalkeeper.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, people are always, even your own family are surprising. You know, my uh, French grandfather, it turns out that um, he'd come over to London uh, back in the 60s to to visit my mum who was working in in London. She's French. Yeah. and uh, I just found out just the other day uh, that um, just on a whim she bought him a football ticket and it was the 66 World Cup, you know. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so he never spoke about <laughs> it. He just went there, watched it and said it was a great game. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it?
1: But who knew that would be the last time England would pick up the cup? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been a long wait.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, let's talk about uh, the early days then because, uh, you, you know, obviously you've done a lot of different things over the years so where, where have you have you always been based around this area or uh
1: weirdly i've been around here since since about 97 i think um since i left outward bound really mm-hmm. but uh yeah it's i mean how far back do you want to go dan because in that kind of nicholas nickleby way you know i was born in a barn well where,
0: where where did you grow up
1: i was born in france there <laughs> we go. so that's quite interesting in a yeah. small way for, if you're french um, but it's been an interesting couple of years being uh, with Brexit and France, and and the kids have all got French passports as well, so... Right, okay. Um, but yeah, I was born in France, but I, I grew up in uh, just outside Cambridge.
0: Oh, did you? Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Where um, about?
1: Uh, uh, well, it's very confusing, but it's, uh, try and get your head around this, it's a town called St Ives, but it's not the one in Cornwall. No, so I know
0: it, because I grew up in outside Cambridge as well. Oh, no, well, there you go, It's <laughs> so well, the best people And <laughs> uh, the other side, though, in a village called Bolsham. Okay. If you know, you yeah. might not know that, it's about ten miles outside of Cambridge, but
1: so the idea about living in Cambridgeshire is it's actually very flat and very boring. And yeah. um, and if you like the outdoors like I do, sort of mountains and fast-moving rivers and yeah. glaciers and oceans, and uh, there's none of that in Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just <Yeah. laughs> it's just the fens and the river cam. So, yeah. so quite a lot of um, explorers and adventurers and outdoor people sort of uh, escape from Cambridgeshire, yeah. Um, yeah. which is what I did as soon as I could uh, when I was 18, in a good way, No, I had a great great upbringing, great family, very lucky.
0: That's funny, yeah, that's exactly the reasons that I uh, moved away from Cambridge here as well, was (laughs) because I was bored of the flatness, and I (laughs) moved down to Bristol. I met this guy
1: climbing, (laughs) ice climbing on Ben Nevis once, and uh, a guy called Henry, he's a really nice guy, and I just remember he was climbing some grade 7 ridiculous ice climb on the north face of Ben Nevis. Yeah. And I think we were having a cup of coffee at the bottom or something, and I said, so where do you come from, Henry? And he's like, I come from Cambridge. And i like, that makes perfect sense. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I joined the uh, Cambridge, was it, Cambridgeshire Mountain Biking Club or something once, and uh, is went, that out on the a, Hills, went out is for a it? few rides. No, it was just like on, on uh, footpaths, you know, well far i'm sure yeah across across flat fields in loads of mud it was horrible yeah. in the dark there's yeah, well.
1: not a lot to do but. it
0: wasn't it wasn't okay right so so you moved away at 18 to uh
1: when when i was 18 i had this weird thing that i was um interested in transatlantic ocean sailing uh, okay. when i was sort of 16 17 and and, and being half French Breton, um, I was surrounded in Saint Marlowe and, and Brittany with lots of ocean races and that sort of sort mm. of culture of uh, you know, sort of Ellen MacArthur type stuff. Mm. And um so at the first opportunity I I jumped ship and instead of going to university I was offered a a, a place as crew on a, a French race yacht mm. um to sort of sail across the Atlantic. And well, so I spent my gap year sailing. Back and forth across the Atlantic, which was fantastic. Wow, it's quite It was, um, <laughs> you know, it's obviously risky, but at the time it didn't feel very risky because I was 18 and wasn't yeah, really aware of those risks. things. Don't at that age, no, <laughs> yeah. no, um, you know, you only sort of well, we we hit storms and things, and uh, it was all adventurous stuff, but it was it was fantastic, yeah,
0: okay, nice. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you came back.
1: I came back and did a, um, a sports science degree, um, right. which was lots of fun. But again, the sports science back in the day was all about, you know, sort of, for want of a better word, British sports. You know, cricket, football, rugby, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And my interests were in climbing and sailing and windsurfing and surfing. Right. Okay. So as soon as I could, I left and uh, <laughs> and uh, joined Outward Bound up right. in Scotland which is a great nice. organization, by the way. Um, yeah. For, there's 33 centers around the world and they do great, great work.
0: Okay, yeah. okay. So, uh, yeah, so did you do the whole degree then or did you just... Yeah, no, uh, I did the degree. Did, and, yeah.
1: and as soon as I finished, I kind of went... Um, I did the usual stuff, the ski bum and the surf bum stuff. Did you? <laughs> spent a couple of seasons After uh, you know? just on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just kind of working out what to do next. And yeah. then um, it became obvious for really, me that I'd turn my hobby into my work, sort of a vocation rather than a career. Yeah. So then I um, uh, I joined up with Bound Up in Scotland, which was fantastic. So that was all about sea kayaking and sailing around the Hebrides, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and then um, and then an opportunity came up when apartheid was dismantled in South Africa to try and help. Uh, the sort of post Mandela stuff to, to to set up some outward bound schools in South Africa. So okay. so going from running expeditions across the highlands, West Highlands, to to game reserves with rhinos and lions was quite exciting. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and obviously the the youth from Soweto and Kailisha, the townships in South Africa, were were very challenging in a good way. Um, and uh, you know, none of them could swim, for example. Yeah, yeah. Because no one learns to swim in, in South Africa because of really? the hippos and... The, right, okay. And, uh, there's just... Well, there's no swimming pools for a start. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's one 50-metre pool, I think, in Cape Town. Really? That's mm-hmm. a, Why mm-hmm.
0: do they not have any swimming pools?
1: Because uh, I guess it's a Western <laughs> Olympic thing, you know. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, they, they, uh, they don't really have a culture of, uh, you know, the swimming that we have since childhood really you
0: know? I suppose yeah when you think about it from a out, you know an outside perspective it's a bit of a weird thing isn't it to dig all these holes and fill them with water everywhere and yeah. swim around in them yeah and <laughs> I
1: guess unless you're I mean back in the day also Victorian times in the UK no one swam either you know yeah. all the sailors none of the sailors and the fishermen could swim right so swimming is a relatively new idea that kids have to learn by year six or whatever it is I yeah know. But but I was always kind of a water baby. I was you know, right. pushed in the pool at the age of four. Yeah. <laughs> I peaked. My swimming career peaked at, in 1977. That shows how old I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was seven. I checked my swimming times recently, and I was actually swimming faster when I was seven than I am today.
0: Yeah, but, you know, there's not much, not so much sort of you know, masses, they're well, not so, really not so to say resistant. <laughs> <laughs> the water resistance. Yeah, is I'm
1: 40 stone now and uh, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, the Archimedes principle applies, <laughs> but uh, there's not much water left in the pool when I jump in.
0: Okay, so uh, <laughs> so from Outward Bound then, um, you're obviously doing something a lot different now and, and you've had a journey with, as we said, five startups. Hmm. So how do you get from Outward Bound in South Africa to your, I guess your first startup. Well,
1: I guess Outward Bound is a, is a charity, really, so they don't pay great wages. It's a great lifestyle and experience, but you can't really make a, a career out of it um, mm-hmm. if you want a family and a house and usual stuff. So, um, so one well worn path is to set up your own Outward Bound. Consultancy and do sort of management training side of things. Okay. Blokes right. with ropes doing sort of abseiling for management and okay. scaring the hell out of people. <laughs> um, <laughs> In a nice way, I wouldn't say damaging them, but uh, uh, helping them overcome their fears and work work together. And, yeah, yeah. You know, we never forced anyone to do anything.
0: The sort of corporate team building. Yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, we, so we did that, and then I realised that a lot of that didn't really work, to be honest. So, I drifted into the tech side of things, which what, was.
0: What do you mean it didn't work?
1: Well, you know, if you, if you say, in it's kind of David Brent way, if you say to your management team, we're all going abseiling, you know, well, half of them are delighted and the other half are scared witless, <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure really how that brings a team together. You, right, know, okay. cause you, you end up with the David Brent characters who are all very gung-ho and they're usually the ones that end up crying as they abseil down through a mist of tears. Um, and and it's always surprising, you know. It's always the usually the receptionist or the secretary is actually the strongest, most courageous, uh, well-connected person, most adjusted person. Right. The team. <laughs> and it's well known or well documented at Harvard and and uh, uh, other sort of management schools that the higher up in corporate land, you get the more psychotic uh, the leadership is, more focused, which on the one hand is a good thing, yeah, uh, and also you know as Robert uh, Louis Stevenson said, a life devoted to busyness, as he called it, instead of business. Busyness <laughs> is a life in total neglect of almost everything else. Right. So okay. they end up slightly psychotic. So oh, yeah. to have a psychotic leader uh, telling his fairly well adjusted team to jump <laughs> off cliffs isn't, isn't always the best team building. Um, but okay. it, was, it was challenging. It was lots of fun, to be honest. It so you cool. sort
0: of saw that they weren't like real tangible sort it of It just felt there
1: were from. better ways to do it. And the tech yeah. was now emerging. So we, we hooked into this idea of social network analytics, which okay. had come out of um, terrorist tracking um, after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that uh, networks matter and, and human relations, human capital, social capital, mm-hmm. um, who you know is more important, as Bill Gates would tell you, than what you know. Mm. Although Bill Gates probably is a bit of both. Yeah. Um, but the idea that um, you know there are hubs, there are brokers, there are echo chambers, there are weak links in a team, there are um, resilient teams and, and very fragile teams, and you can map all of that now, and obviously. The research was being done. with software was being developed, where you kind of layer human intelligence with mapping technology and data, and then you can work out whether a terrorist cell is active or a threat, or whether it's mm-hmm. just a bunch of teenagers talking. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, that was really interesting applying that to the uh, financial sector.
0: So. That's quite different to what you were doing before. Yeah, well, it was still <laughs> and, the
1: same people, actually, funnily enough. Okay, well, but in it,
0: terms of who you were, your clients. Yeah, was, it was uh,
1: still the the financial sector mostly. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of a, a different facet to to it. So, in terms of, rec- you know, uh, if you have a high performing finance team, a top team in in the fintech sector, um, you want to make sure the team is resilient and you're not doubling effort or have any weak spots, but you also want to make sure that they're happy and Don't get recruited by your arch enemy, your competitor. Right. Okay. So if someone recruits a senior manager, then it can cost a couple hundred thousand pounds to replace them But also it will take you six months to train them up and mm-hmm. your team will be in disarray for six months There's, right. there's a lot of nuances to to the networks um, Okay, so but you- obviously I made a strategic error Obviously, in hindsight, all of my customers were fintech, and this was in two thousand and seven. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're never more than three plan. three phone calls away from business failure, and uh, but I but, to but, have less than that.
0: but how did you sort of get interested in the and into the tech side of that from what you were doing before? Because the outward bound. You know, upselling and everything seems very different to uh, now I'm going to learn this yeah, social analysis. Yeah, I think
1: there's, there's quite a, a large overlap between outdoor types and tech types. Okay. If there's a Venn diagram, they perhaps nearly mostly overlap. The, right. The, yeah. um, you know, the stereotype of the tech person in a dark room, you know, gaming all day uh, <laughs> is not my experience of it. Um, right. And... uh you know, in the outdoor world, you know, you, you'd you have altimeters and GPS and, you know, sat-navs and all sorts of stuff way before cars had them, mm, for navigating mm. and VHF okay. radios. And everyone's kind of teched up yeah, as much right. as you can. And then that, that goes over into computing. And then, so a lot of my okay. um, outward bound friends are, are big on tech. Okay, so, yeah, I suppose
0: it makes sense, doesn't it? It's a bit like... Uh, know a bit like the sort of tech that comes from military in a way it's that kind of extreme yeah that requires those solutions yeah in in the same way that being out in the middle of nowhere (laughs) exactly (laughs) so people think
1: people think that out well, bound types, outdoor types, it's all about roughing it and, and yeah. you know, going back to basics. Actually, that's very far from the truth. It's all about smoothing it and making life as simple as possible <laughs> and as comfortable as possible. And the last yeah. thing you want to do is get lost. Yeah. So instead of using your silver <laughs> sort of compass orienting through the forest fight, you just switch on the GPS and say, oh, here we are. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. Save yourself a bit of time.
0: And hope that it doesn't fail, I suppose.
1: Well, obviously, it does fail. All <laughs> tech fails eventually. The batteries run out or it gets wet or something. So you, you have to have the basic you know, fire lighting, compass skills yeah, in the background. Okay. Um, I wouldn't ever rely on GPS or tech. Yeah, yeah. But it's nice to have.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, so that makes some sense. So you already had this interest in tech, and then that sort of turned yeah. into this new, this new venture. But uh, as you say timing was not ideal
1: no no it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean in hindsight you know, there's two strategies isn't there is it one one is to you know spread your risk and, and have a diversified portfolio they would call mm. it um, and the other one is to put all your eggs in one basket and watch it like a hawk um, mm-hmm. and so that's what I did and that basket dropped and all the eggs smashed <laughs> in the uh, great run on northern rock and and to give you a clue, my, my main customers were um, Royal Bank of Scotland, Bank of Scotland, uh, Halifax Bank, yeah. um, and NatWest, of course. So they all collapsed massively. So, and it was a great shame as well because the staff and the teams were wonderful. Um, it was just obviously bigger macroeconomic forces.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what was that like then in, in you know, day-to-day reality over that time period?
1: Everyone got fired
0: yeah
1: literally overnight everyone went yeah. um and uh, it was like going from some massive burning man festival to some sort of tumbleweed desert <laughs> yeah. in the blink of an eye <laughs> you know yeah. um it was very sad. some people had spent you know their whole careers man and boy working for these companies and, and mm. lost everything um but you know it just goes to show really that you never really- c- control is. Is an illusion, really? You know, mm. You're never really in control of your destiny. You can just be, you know, as good as you can be, and there are always outside forces. And you learn that as well when you sail across the Atlantic. You know, no yeah. matter how good a sailor you are, or how good your boat is, you know, if there's a storm, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. And there's nowhere if you're in the middle middle of the Atlantic in a force ten, as I was. There's, there's, you just got to get through it. Yeah, There's there's no kind of Oh I'm going to take a day off So that's what
0: I was going to say Like at that time um, You know Mm. How worried were you And did your experience of the sailing And those kind of You know extreme sports Sort of do you think help you through In terms of your mindset And how you deal with it
1: Yeah Definitely Definitely I mean I probably had about Four or five near death experiences Really? Some very close Right. Um, in glaciers and crevasses and uh, rock climbing and uh, perhaps saved a few lives along the way as well and right. um, it's uh, it's always humbling to realize how how uh, fragile we are really mm. um but yeah I think it does give you a certain resilience and a certain you know uh, attitude to just get on with it
0: yeah so so when all that happened and you know presumably your business followed suit with the uh, you know your clients businesses um w- what were you, were you worried or were you just kind of right we just uh, get through this was, and it's it's nothing compared to nearly dying in the middle of a glacier
1: um yeah it's just business isn't it really it's only money it's just business um and as so long as you've got your health i think as long as you've got your friends and family, you know. Yeah. I think the, the definition of success is to laugh often and to have lots of friends. You know, it's not to die in a coffin full of gold coins. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, yeah, you just pick yourself up and, and start again. You know, lots of entrepreneurs have done that before. There's a there's a, a whole history of, uh, uh, especially in America. If you read the the American business book and the press there's a culture of failing. It's almost like a badge of Mm. honor to go bankrupt and fail Mm.
0: um,
1: and start again. And you do learn a lot along the Mm. way. Like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, But I didn't go bust, um, but I did liquidate it because the the future wasn't looking so bright. Um, And it took a few years for it to turn around, as we all know. Ten years, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) So I did what anyone else would do is uh, I, I set up a... Pepper spice trading company. <laughs> I wanted to do something completely different. Right, okay. I was kind of tired of people. Okay, and so I thought I'd try instead of running a service effectively with people. Yeah, I thought I'd try a product. Okay, just a widget. So how put did in you land box. on uh, Pepper? Well, Pepper's obvious, really. When you stop <laughs> and think about it, you know, it, it's uh, it's just seemed like the. Really rational Obvious thing to do Were
0: well, you just literally Doing a bit of cooking <laughs> <laughs> for, As you're putting your pepper Well I ran yourself. Out of, Yeah I was cooking That's I, I ran
1: out of pepper And I thought Oh I need to get some more pepper um, No I uh, Joking aside I um, Was uh, Working with my wife um, Who uh, Runs a great Clean water charity Called Frank Water And um, We'd been To India a few times And mm-hmm. I was quite blown away by um, the uh, the Indian markets and obviously the spice trading. Yeah. Um, and I thought of chili pepper, and I went to a, a chili pepper warehouse about the size of Wembley, with f- right. five pallets high, full of chilies. Your eyes yeah. water as you go into it. Right. It's just incredible amount of chili they produce. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I was friends with Bart Spices down in Bristol. Um, uh, I was living in Bristol at the time with my wife and. Uh, Uh, Bristol's a small uh, entrepreneurial community, uh, a very well-connected network of people. Mm -hmm. And Bart Spices were friends, and uh, um, we spoke a lot about the various um, challenges of spices and plantations and organic and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I thought I'd become a, a, a spice trader. I was in India anyway with my wife, and I thought, I'll just bring some as you do, bring a couple of tons of spices home with you. Uh, merchandise and baggage, they call it. Um, and uh it soon became obvious that setting up a, a, a spice or herb business is is a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. Right. You've got 300 herbs and spices out there, okay. uh, all going off at different rates. Some are wet, some are dry, some ginger, turmeric, whatever, slightly wet, damp. Um, some... that come from around the world, Mm -hmm. um, you know, from China, Indonesia, Asia, Australia, whatever. Um, And then it dawned on me that uh, that food goes through certain fashions. Okay. Right. So um, I've always been a cook. My mother's a very good cook, French cook. Mm -hmm. Um, She specialises in patisserie stuff, really good stuff. Um, So... uh, if you uh, look at the supermarket, aisles, there's transformations like olive oil, for example. Olive oil yeah. used to be used for ears. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? No, yeah. No one used to eat olive oil. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and now we're, we're obsessed with olive oil, um, or extra virgin olive oil, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the same sort of reinvention happened in chocolate, where everyone has to eat 70% cocoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happened in coffee. Mm-hmm. Coffee went through a mental phase where everyone was, you know, talking about oh, it's got to be Arabica, not Robusta, whatever. <laughs> everyone else, you know, years ago it was just Nescaf you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? and the same for wine. It was all Pied and now it's kind of you know, haze wines, <laughs> which is great, by the way. Recommend it. Um, so yeah, and and uh, all these kind of reinventions of these. Food products had um, happened, but one of the aisles that'd been neglected and is an absolute complete pain in the ass to shop for is, and still is, by the way, spices. Right. So if you're the average shopper and you've got a couple of kids in tow and a trolley full of stuff and other things to do Mm. And someone challenges you to find ground cumin or to find (laughs) uh, You know clothes or whatever and and, you know, there's kind of six different types and organic and fair trade And yeah, and you have no idea about the quality of it. Yeah, you'll be be obsessing about the quality of your coffee and you'll just buy pepper dust (laughs) yeah, <laughs> you know, it's on.
0: Yeah, it's true, isn't it? I, I, do you think that's sort of partly from our culture of cooking, and that we we don't use that many spices anyway? So
1: it's. Kind oh, of I think we do. I think we use. We only cook five meals, and most people um, only ever cook five meals. It, really? it, yeah, it tends to be on a rotation. Most people cook. It's kind of like a. Uh, some sort of bolognese, or some sort of curry, yeah, or some check. sort of yeah. uh, roast <laughs> roast chickeny type thing, and yeah. yeah, it's quite well documented. We're not very adventurous, right? Okay. All this kind of Jamie Oliver Thai lemongrass stuff is is not the real world. It's not the daily, no, yeah, okay. It's not, but that. So that said, um, I think if you don't if you don't focus on a food category, the producers get lazy, and then the supermarkets get greedy. So there's this kind of fight between the supermarkets wanting the cheapest product mm-hmm. so they can put the greatest margin on for them mm-hmm. and the producers actually just wanting to grow and sell the easiest product. So you end up with this okay. easy, cheap thing, which right. becomes a race to the bottom and the quality gets left behind. Yeah, yeah and okay. And so nobody really thinks about it. And so... While you're not looking, the quality goes down and down and down and down. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, in the old days, I don't know when, the 17th century, we would have all been eating organic fair trade chicken because yes. it would have been your own chicken in your own yard. <laughs> yeah. And now it's battery farmed, fed off grain. This you know, yeah, is the daylight, yeah. 20 yeah. to a cage sort of thing. Yeah. So unless you actually make an effort to find the quality, you won't find it. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the final thing I'll say, because I could talk about pepper for days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> the pepper one. Uh, so I chose pepper because um, it's dry and it's really interesting. It's the number one spice, and okay. it's the only one that's on the table yeah. along with salt. Mm. So it's the one that most people eat in most meals. Mm-hmm. So you won't put Thai lemongrass or star anise. In most meals, mm-hmm. but you always put pepper in, and nearly, I'd say, 99% of recipes say, you know, add salt and pepper.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I thought actually that's the one to to reinvent. Yeah. So okay. we invented a company called Peppermongers, and we brought in uh, the best peppers from around the world. Um, right. And we brought in reinvented uh, uh, Indonesian long pepper, which was the pepper that the Romans had. Right. Okay. Um. And uh Tele Cherry Garbled Special Extra Bold, which is a really good grade of black pepper. Okay. Um, and then, of course, my favorite is Sichuan pepper, the Chinese, which is not the same species, of course. And we did we yeah, we were very uh, peculiar. I hate pink pepper, so that never cut the mustard. <laughs> and uh, white pepper is also pretty atrocious, smells of old socks. Right. Yeah. Okay. All the aroma in pepper is in the black bit yeah okay and the people don't realize pepper's like like a plum you know it's got a fleshy outer and a stone in the middle so the stone in the middle is the white pepper bit okay black skin on the outside is the aromatic fruity bit
0: okay right it's a bit like um sort of reminds me of gin in a way because you know that's one of those things like you said uh you know with with Chocolate and everything that's suddenly gone crazy, hasn't it? And yeah, Mother's Ruin. Pre- mother's
1: Ruin is back, folks. Previously, like,
0: gin just was gin, and yeah. you couldn't, really, yeah, it you was couldn't Gordons. really taste the difference <laughs> between Gordon's and Sapphire, although you pretend that, yeah. you know, oh, I really like the Sapphire, I'll have that when yeah. you go down the pub to try and look a yeah. bit. Um, well, the like, Bombay you know, so Sapphire,
1: famously, of course, would have the cubeb pepper and the Vietnamese black pepper in it. Yeah. That's what you're tasting.
0: <laughs> and now there's like, you know, hundreds yeah. of gins, and you can actually taste the difference between them. I suppose it's a bit like. How much like are that. drinking, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that, right? Where, uh, you know, because I think of. I'm probably just a, a normal, pepper <laughs> <laughs> normal pepper user.
1: Normal pepper user. Normal
0: pepper user. I, you know, put pepper on my food without thinking too much, without even tasting it. And yeah. it's like, why the hell do you do that? It's probably just a, a habit. But I guess when you get into it, there's a lot now lots of different pepper flavours and it's actually yeah. quite interesting.
1: I think it's just taking care about what you put in your mouth, really. I think, you know, food is... Is fuel really you wouldn't put diesel in a petrol engine and I think we just eat the wrong foods most of the time and it really affects our health so yeah. if, you, if you don't look after the details you know like the spices you use and, mm. and also the farmers and there's a whole there is a fair trade element to it an organic mm. element to it as well it's really yeah. nice to meet the farmers go to the plantations and and there's is funny enough there's a tech element to it as well in the sense that you know most pepper mills are rubbish they break and they <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. seize up. And yeah. you often end up eating your pepper mill. When you buy one of those mills from the supermarket, the the plastic mills grind into your food. Oh, yeah. So no one thinks about this. But the whole experience of pepper is <laughs> a nightmare. It still is a nightmare. You know, you run out of pepper. You go to the store. You can't find it. You don't know uh, if you're getting good value. You know, is it five yeah. quid, one quid? Who well, Who knows? Who cares? Yeah, yeah, who cares? Then you bring it yeah. home you put it in your pepper mill half goes on the floor you sweep <laughs> it up you can't tell the difference between the dust and the pepper <laughs> you know
0: we uh we got a uh, salt and pepper grinders for our wedding
1: and, <laughs> Do um, they still as, a, work? as
0: a wedding present yeah yeah no nice ones you know <laughs> like that peugeot in fact yeah you'd like them the
1: brothers peugeot they've and done well. uh, one yeah. did better than the other i think
0: and for years we just were like these aren't very good you mm. know you can never get the salt and pepper out of them and, mm. Not much comes out and what's going on and you try tightening the thing up and mm. loosening it and come on i want a bit more pepper on my feed and then i think it was just before we moved house last year we we emptied them out and cleaned them and everything and i was putting them back together and i was like i looked inside and i was like ah the the grinders are different between the, they're a different shape mm. between one and the other
1: Oh, and I looked them up yeah. online,
0: and one's for salt and one's for pepper. Yeah. And now we've got the right one in the in the right one, and you get plenty of salt it's, and pepper. It's a rookie so, error, um,
1: but, yeah, this, I mean, <laughs> the salt obviously will rust it all up. And, the you know, people, yeah, there's a lot of detail. But, yeah, pepper mills are rubbish. and You know, pestle and mortars <laughs> are too heavy. Uh, just, you know, ground pepper is what everyone goes for. But, of course, the aromatic, it's like having an the open flavor's bottle. Gone, the flavour's gone, right? The, the yeah. flavour's gone. You're just eating... So what, okay, Heat. so we'll move on from pepper
0: yes, in a minute, but like... I told you I could speak for David. What your, <laughs> if, someone's, if someone's going to the supermarket now as they're listening to this podcast and they're going to get some pepper and they're going to get a new pepper grinder, or, or what's the best, what's your, your tips for how to get that pepper from there onto their food in the best possible way? Just give me a
1: call. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some in the garage. You've you got some good pepper. Yeah, got, okay, so yeah. don't go to the supermarket. No, don't that, put it in a grinder. Bart, to be fair, Bart spices are still very good. Yeah, I would go for something from
0: Bart. But do you pass them more to all your pepper?
1: Yeah, sometimes until they all bounce out onto the floor. You know, they're <laughs> quite hard little buggers, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's horses for courses, really. So, um, But yeah, just pay attention to your spices. It's the best thing for food. It really does add... Flavor and value as well. I, I never really understand students who don't have money for food. You know, when actually spices are so relatively cheap, and you can really jazz up your food quite cheaply. And yeah,
0: yeah, okay.
1: yeah it's taste. It's all about taste. So not okay. that I have any taste anymore since I've had COVID. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what takes you then from the pepper industry into the next uh, venture, and what was it?
1: Uh, I so I was still techie. Okay, yep. so okay. I'm still doing outdoor stuff and still techie in the background. Yeah, and um, part of my network analytics was about network resilience, basically um, how distributed networks are better than centralized networks. Okay, so um, the internet was supposed to be distributed, but has ended up being relatively. Centralized, it so, is right, isn't it? so it's yeah, it's Amazon <laughs> web service. It's Google. It's Facebook. It's yeah. I don't know, you know. So it's not as 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 resilient or distributed or fair as it could be um, and uh, I sold the pepper company peppermongers I sold it to a salt company because you can't make <laughs> up uh, uh, Real life is more interesting than fiction. So so, um, yeah, I was, uh, salt and pepper was always on our plan. plan and, the but a uh, salt company <laughs> bought it out. So that was an opportunity to go back to tech. Yeah. By which time, of course, uh, after the financial crisis 2009, the blockchain had been invented. Right. And the blockchain is a distributed network. Mm-hmm. So I immediately clocked that the blockchain was going to be big and it was very interesting on a, on a philosophical level as much as a technical level.
0: Okay, because um, you'd been doing all this network analysis yeah. work for so long. Yeah. That was kind of, whereas most other people like myself would have been like, what's that? Oh, look, a, <laughs> let's go and do something else. Yeah. <laughs> you understood it, what was going on. I about. understood it
1: on a, on a relatively deep level, possibly too deep a level, And uh, the the breakthroughs in cryptography were really interesting. You know, people now would, you know, get it. You know, they get that Mm. WhatsApp is encrypted messages is better than, say, you know, text messaging or whatever. Yeah. So, um, but back in the 2009 when it was invented, it kind of went under the radar, and then reappeared. in sort of 2013, 14, 15, and 15 uh, right. and it's been growing ever since, and I think it will continue to grow
0: so what was your what was your first moves then after the pepper uh, peppermongers sold then into this this area uh,
1: so I ended up as so i'd been in Bristol and um, with my wife we'd been to Timbuktu and Borneo, and uh, traveled quite a bit. Um, and then we ended up back in Malvern. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife's family are farmers over in Bishop's Froome. So we came back to the family farm, okay. by which time we had three kids under three. Right, okay. So <laughs> grandma was quite helpful. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, three under three, folks, go for it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here. <laughs> I mean, you've got, you, you've got, got five, got yeah. Five. five. Five under five? Uh, no, <laughs> five under
0: nine and under. I yeah.
1: That's still some going. Well <laughs> well so you'll appreciate that uh, many hands make light work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so we ended up back in Malvern and I met the great Dr. Adrian Burden mm-hmm. at the Witch Innovation Centre. Uh, a, a mutual friend of ours put us in touch and uh
0: episode 24
1: episode 24 <laughs> cracker
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay Ethic. and you got talking tech and networks and distributed networks yeah
1: yeah we we got talking about how blockchain could change various sectors and industries and yeah. and i think you know in the world of tech software is eating the world and all that kind of stuff the world of tech um there were some big gaps that you know you could do your shopping online and things like that, and you could do your messaging online. You know, mm-hmm. but there were still some big gaps. Payments was a big gap, obviously, and so that's where cryptocurrency came in. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we were really interested. I've always been fascinated by really boring stuff. Okay. You know. Uh, like yourself Dan No. Um, <laughs> oh you're interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> no, um joking. The boring stuff like um not boring. That's the wrong word. Invisible stuff. Okay. Okay, that makes the world go round. Yeah. So things like paper clips, uh eyelets on shoes, <laughs> cat's eyes on roads, you know, things like that. So somebody somewhere is cleaning up on eyelets on shoes. Yeah, right
0: that's right. true isn't it? I mean, <laughs> just this week mm. <laughs> I Pulled out a bag of uh, the, the tiny little... So, so for the lav mics that we use on video shoots. Yeah. And they've got like a little foam bit that goes over the top of them. We lost one down someone's top, probably. Pulled out a bag of them and I said I said to Tom somewhere in china there's a, there's a factory <laughs> yeah. banging out millions of these tiny little not even in china tops.
1: i met a guy who who bought a bristol channel pilot cutter in bristol it's classic boat that a friend of mine built and uh, i said to him so i just been curious you know how, how do you, how did you buy this boat because oh i run a rivet factory in birmingham <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. he made his millions making rivets, um, which is yeah. obviously what Sarah Guppy, Thomas Guppy, who funded uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, did as well. Rivets, copper rivets. So these kind of invisible things um, that make the world go around, if, if paper clips were uninvented today, you know, we would not be able to move paper flying around. You know, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. things like that. And it dawned on me that. Um, I wanted to go into business with Adrian to to do s- some kind of big change stuff, but on a relatively mundane level, if that makes sense. So a kind of a, a normal thing that people take for granted. And it struck okay. us that uh, he spoke about it in his episode about um, certificates mm-hmm. are dull as ditch water, but they make the world go round. And if you take out certificates, um, which is accreditation and verification and stuff, then mm. you get into big trouble pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Pakistani airlines where, you know, 30% of the pilots were not qualified, not certified. Right, or, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of certificate fraud out there. So we thought we could solve that with, with blockchain. Um,
0: okay, so give a sort of, I mean, people, can go back and listen to Adrian's episode where he sort of explained...
1: It's a great better than this one, folks. <laughs> yeah,
0: if you bored, can switch off now. Go straight back, now, to go back to <laughs> it. So, No, I was just going to say he gave a pretty good sort of uh, overview of how blockchain works in layman's terms and everything. But have you got a sort of two-minute
1: version? Uh, <laughs> it's just Jenga with superglue. There we go. A, okay. a stone Jenga with super glue. There we go, that's what it is. So, most uh, it's a database, okay. And most databases are, uh, you know, very hackable and changeable and Mm -hmm. deletable, like spreadsheets, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so the idea with uh, the blockchain is that you put all your data into a chisel, it onto a stone block, and then glue that together onto a Jenga tower, um, in super glue. So you can't change the data on the block, and you can't undo the Mm superglue. And then instead of having one Jenga tower, you've got 20,000 of them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can't hack into it and change one piece of data. Yeah,
0: 20,000 copies of the same Jenga tower. Of the same Jenga tower. And that Jenga
1: tower, by the way, is half a million blocks high. Yeah. So if you wanted to go down to your transaction from last year, you'd have to hack all the way down through Mm 20,000 blocks. All that within ten minutes before the next block is added to the top. Yeah, yeah. And There's not That's enough it. computing power to do it. So the so the actual database of blockchain is is really interesting setup, and and nobody controls it, but like mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no one. Well, it's slightly more complicated than that, of course. But.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, hmm. <laughs> so we have digital certificates on the on the on the blockchain, which is your blockmark tech. Yeah. Company, yeah, uh, which is which is seeing good success, I think.
1: Yeah, it's growing fast at the minute. Um, so obviously, COVID was an interesting little diversion for us, and we did some work with Innovate UK to to build out the the COVID passport with a blockchain option. Um, I think we all realise that the NHS app and and the government is. Well, it, by definition, it's centralized. So, <laughs> so, you know, but getting data in and out of the NHS is is a nightmare. Yeah. So by yeah. having a sort of independent um, blockchain version w- was a solution that was obviously not adopted. Um, and it all fell over with the politics. But the rest of the world has got one. <laughs> yeah.
0: But your, your next, uh, your next sort of iteration of this then is the, the NFT Yes. Thing, which is the the, so the the gems.
1: Yeah, so the, the FNTs, as you called them earlier, they're quite confusing, the NFTs Did and I? FNTs. Did <laughs> I say
0: FNT? Yeah. Did I? Oh no. <laughs> I uh,
1: they're very confusing. <laughs> it's just uh, it's a TOA, Even the isn't acronym it? is It's like a TLC. Yeah, The three-letter acronyms are confusing. Um at Blockmark Tech, all we do is certificates, but there's obviously different flavours and versions of certificates. And the one really interesting certificate is the non-fungible token. Yeah. And so just to clear this up uh, once and for all, uh, an NFT is a certificate. That's all it is. Okay? And somebody complained the other day that the crazy world of NFTs, people are going into grocery stores and they're buying the receipt okay, instead of the goods. Okay? Right. Um, and they were saying that as a criticism, and actually, it's a very good Metaphor that's exactly what they're doing. That's really good and When you stop and think about it having a receipt is actually a good thing Yeah, it proves the ownership proves a lot of things (laughs) proves the ownership. It's a timestamp It's something you can get a refund with it's something you could sell on to someone else if the goods are still valid and so forth and proof of origin all of this is tied back to the certificate That goes with it. So, where the confusion comes with NFTs, non-fungible tokens, is well. First off, a fungible token is something that uh, can be interchanged. Fungible means interchangeable. So, um, you know, and if you were to think of tokens, so if you've got a car wash token, that's the same Mm -hmm. as another car wash token. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you've got a can of Coke, it's the same as another can of Coke. That's the whole point of cans of Coke. Yeah. Look and taste the same. Yeah. And the same for a five-pound note, apart from the serial number, five-pound notes are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Bitcoin is a fungible token. That's Mm -hmm. the first cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And then that's one set of goods that are fungible. Um, And then you've got another set of goods that are non-fungible, that are unique Mm -hmm. goods, basically. I don't know why they didn't just call them uniques. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) jargon is there to confuse people. Uh, and so your unique token could be your wife's carrot cake or my, um, you know, steak with pepper dish, yeah. with my secret recipe. But that every time you make it is unique. And obviously, yeah. a unique uh, uh, category of products is art. So mm-hmm. you know th- that one Picasso, that unique Rembrandt, that unique uh, Da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in between the two, just to confuse things a little bit more, you know, it's, it's obvious when you think about it, is uh, semi-fungible tokens or what we would call limited editions.
0: Okay, so like a run of prints or So something. a
1: run of prints, a run of photos, or a run okay. of Mars bars, a special offer on Walker's Crisps yeah. or whatever. Gotcha. Those will be limited editions Okay. sit in between the two. Mm-hmm. But the non-fungible one is interesting because obviously with uniques, there's inbuilt scarcity. Mm-hmm. there's only one Mona Lisa mm-hmm. and there's only one Salvatore Mundi there's only one um, you know unique painting so uh, so that they then have value because they're scarce just as diamonds are scarcer than sand mm-hmm. um, and uh, and people trade them and then if you're trading them what you need is a logbook database of ownership is mm-hmm. it? And the, the the key thing to remember is there's a big difference between, well, it's the physical digital divide, but the big difference is between possession and ownership.
0: Okay. Yeah. So in
1: 1911, Vincenzo stole Mona Lisa from the Louvre, took it to Italy. Mm-hmm. Da Vinci. It belongs in Italy. Uh, he possessed it when he walked out of the Louvre with it under his coat. Yeah. He possessed it for a couple of years, but he didn't own it. The Louvre still owned it. Yeah,
0: okay, gotcha.
1: Okay, so yeah. the Louvre has effectively still got the certificate of ownership, even yeah. though the physical good is somewhere else. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's the tricky thing to get your head around.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. But yeah, as you're saying, it exists already with everything that we own. <laughs>
1: well, most things yeah. we have have a certificate attached to them. Whether it's yeah. a car, we'll have an MOT certificate. A house, will have some deeds. Your health record, your uh, educational record, your academics. You know, your yeah. every you know bit of furniture you buy or a piece of tech will have a you know certificate, a warranty with it, or whatever of ownership. Yeah. And definitely. then if you buy stuff on eBay, you might you know want a certificate of ownership or authenticity. Yeah, with it. yeah. So when you're buying art, um, you often get a certificate, you know, approved by the auction house or the the dealer or the broker. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it moves a lot faster when it's digital art, obviously, because you don't mm-hmm. then have the problem of shipping the physical product. So
0: yeah. Okay. And I think that's that's probably where people get a bit, uh, hung up and confused. I think with the NFT thing, isn't it? Is the the i the idea of digital art, which I think what you're saying is that's a separate issue. Like whether people are into digital art or not is one thing. Yeah, but the NFT thing could be applied to physical goods and digital goods.
1: NFT can be applied to everything where you want to keep a record of a certificate on a immutable ledger. Yeah, okay. yeah. But the the confusion is you're absolutely right is on the digital. Uh, end of it, and you just have to think about the evolution of art as an example. That you start off with cave art, you know, thirty thousand years ago, and then in the caves of France, and and then then you end up, you know, someone invents egg-based paint, and mm. then you've got oil. You know, people say, "Oh, this NFT is worth sixty million pounds." That's ridiculous. So well, I could argue that the Mona Lisa is a bit of oil on a rag, and that's worth <laughs> seven hundred million. Yeah, that's also yeah, yeah. slightly ridiculous. You know? Yeah. So. Let's separate out the value or the perceived value of something to the actual medium that it's made in. So yeah. you can have your, you know, cave art, your, uh, your oil painting, your, your watercolor, and you could yeah. argue your watercolor. You know, people say, well, your digital art could just be switched off. Mm. Well, your watercolor could get wet. Yeah. You know, it could catch fire. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I'm sure the Mona Lisa would go up pretty. Nicely with
0: And also it occurred to me After we spoke the other week That um, we're actually We particularly <laughs> Myself Are actually selling Digital art already exactly. In the form of The photography and videos all yeah. we, You know When people commission us Or yeah. we're sending them As a digital file the end of the day and yeah. we're, we're giving them the license to use that so now the
1: license is the key thing Yeah. so the other uh, argument people have and including my young children say why don't you just cut and paste it right click and save you know yeah. it's a digital piece of art yeah. and of course you can do that and, yeah. and that's good for you everyone has access to it now you don't have to go to a museum to see the Mona Lisa you yeah. can access it you could take a pretty good screen grab of the Mona Lisa, print it up, put it on your wall, and it would look pretty much like the Mona Lisa. You know, yeah, yeah. make sure it's small. Well, you could copy it in oil paints. A lot of people <laughs> do. A lot of forgeries do copy yeah. uh, oil paintings, especially valuable ones. But the point is, you don't own it. The point yeah. is that you don't have the license to display it or own it mm. and take tickets for it. Mm. So even though uh, the, Louvre stolen, uh, uh, the Louvre was stolen, the Louvre was stolen, Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre, the the Louvre could still sell tea towels with the picture of Mona Lisa on. They could still sell, yeah. you know, Mona Lisa, you know, kind of in the souvenir shop. Yeah. Um, no one else could. They could right, license yeah. Mona Lisa to filmmakers and Da Vinci. Yep. Yeah, uh, Dan Brown's yeah. films or whatever. You know, they still technically own it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and also the other thing about um, art, of course, and, and uh, it's a two-edged sword, but. Um, the, the worst thing uh, for the Louvre than talking about the Mona Lisa is not talking about the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> someone's stealing it and everyone talking about it and people stealing your image and using your image on tea towels without your permission increases the value to 700 million and gets yeah, people yeah. through the door. Because the Mona Lisa isn't really a looker. You know, it's not a great <laughs> painting on any level. You yeah, know. yeah. Um, And it may not even be by Da Vinci, you know, because he only never signed his work. So he never produced a certificate for any of his stuff. (laughs) Think about that. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he only finished 20 paintings, the rest are a workshop. So, you know, when you buy that 700 million, which is actually the story that's going on, uh, Salvatore Mundi, the, the, the Saudis have bought the Salvatore Mundi, the last Da Vinci. There's now a big argument, $450 million. Yeah. Whether it's actually by Da Vinci at all, <laughs> at least okay. with a blockchain version of digital art, you can go back to the original artist who's you yeah. know, dropped their data onto the blockchain.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, from when we spoke last time as well, your your sort of you know entry into the NFT world and everything was, you know, you were early on, weren't you? You were you were like you said, one of the OGs. Yeah, the OGs <laughs> the, is yeah, the an original NFT.
1: gangster. We had to be told what that was. Did you? <laughs> was so old. <laughs> of yeah. the NFT world. But apparently and, uh, it's a compliment, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is
0: definitely. Um, and, you know, you're actually one of the sort of leading companies when it comes to NFTs in this country, really.
1: Apparently so. Um, it's, it's like, it's a very strange feeling. It's like you... Focus so much on um taking part in the race that you you'd never look at the competition and you turn around and, and and they're all in the rear view mirror miles away <laughs> and you kind of got so focused in what you were doing um uh so yes it, by accident not really by design but by accident we carried on innovating and and we just were playing with the tech and i think that's a really interesting idea that playing and experimenting is very undervalued. There's not much time in businesses to Mm. play and mess about with stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we were playing and messing about um, with non-fungible tokens, thinking we could make driving licenses with them and MOT certificates. But actually, we ended up um, making some art, Um, Blockmark Gems, which were from the artist Paul Farrell, who uh, worked with us to produce some uh, some some basic sort of gem based images, very simple, very graphic, very yeah. beautiful, um, and they were sort of diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we took these eight images from Paul with three or four layers on each one, and and we ran them through Adrian's brain and his algorithm, <laughs> and uh, and created. Uh, the possibility of a hundred thousand versions of this art. Yeah. So from these eight um, original images.
0: By assigning a limited run and an NFT to a sort of lim- as a limited edition to each one. That
1: yeah. I mean? So they were all so. So it is slightly complicated, but basically each image was unique. So we yeah. imagine we have cut this tombola of layers, and every fifteen minutes it spits out, you know, five different layers and this one looks like a diamond and this is the colour of an emerald and this one's big and this one's small and whatever. Mm-hmm. So we could make ten thousand or a hundred thousand images. Each one of them would be unique. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we allocate a certificate to each one. And that's the NFT. Okay. So there's certificate number one, certificate number two. So number one could be an emerald, number two could be a topaz, number three could be an amethyst, and so on, until you get to 100,000. We didn't get to 100,000. We ran out of money at
0: 575. (laughs) Okay. Because it costs money to use the blockchain to assign these NFTs, yeah, called minting.
1: Minting, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. So the... The thing about minting is that it does cost money. Um, and well the thing about the blockchain is it costs money. Okay. No, well does it cost is, money? Well nothing is free, okay. Yeah. Um yeah. ever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if someone's offering <laughs> okay. you something free, Dan, there's a hook, okay, there's a trick. Okay? No,
0: no, but I suppose my question is yeah. because you're because you're putting this record onto these yeah. tens of thousands of Jenga towers. Yeah. yeah. Who's being paid when you do that?
1: That's where I'm asking. That is words. complicated. So, basically, <laughs> to simplify it, okay, um, adding stuff to a ledger costs money. Okay. Yeah. So, if you get married and you have a registrar that's standing by with a special inky pen. Yeah. yeah. And they are being paid to write your marriage certificate into the ledger. Yeah. Okay, into the registry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that costs money for the registry. Okay. Process. Now, the way to think of it in blockchain terms is um, that blockchain is like a little bit like a vending machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got a vending machine that either sells all the same things like cans of Coke, those would be fungible tokens, mm-hmm. or it sells non fungible tokens. So imagine a vending machine that sells you know, crisps and chocolates, but each one of them is unique. Okay. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the smart contract is the bit of code where you press A, B and put in your £1.50 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, Or back in the day, 4P for it's a bag say, of crisps. Yeah, it's gone up, hasn't it? It has gone up. £1.50 yeah. for a kind of coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK. Uh, but the idea is that um, the smart contract is the code that does the magic, which is in that little magic electrical box with the numbers. Okay? Yeah. Um, and then uh, you'll notice most vending machines are plugged in. Okay? Yeah. So somebody is paying for the electricity yeah okay so uh so there is a transaction fee now, to confuse things the the electricity in blockchain land is called gas okay okay, so it's not lucky as gas mm-hmm. but you pay a gas fee, and that gas fee does one of two things is it, it it um uh, it, it writes your entry onto the ledger, so imagine a man carving a stone your your transaction mm-hmm. so everyone can see it. Yeah, um, but it also verifies that you own something before. So it, once you start trading, um, so if if, uh, if I give you five pounds, then then you might want to know is that has Tom got five pounds? It's called yeah. the double spend problem. Okay. So email money doesn't work because I can send you five pounds on email. I can also send the same five pounds to twenty of my other friends. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah. it has to be a one of one. Yeah. Okay, and that you can't double spend the same money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the other bit that gas does is it um, gas fees uh, check the blockchain to say, Oh, Tom, does Tom have that five pounds? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And Tom got it from his wife, or Tom okay. got it from, yeah. and it goes all the way back to the origins. Yeah, it's a little okay. bit complicated, okay, but you do basically in simple terms you have to pay for the transaction.
0: Who are you paying?
1: Well. You are paying the miners.
0: Okay, and they're the people with the computers. The miners computers.
1: Are, are being rewarded for their double checking and their, their writing. Okay,
0: yeah. so is that what mining is then? Yeah.
1: Mining okay. is is a bunch of people with computers that are using their computers to check every transaction is authentic yeah. and validate it. Mm-hmm. And they also uh, they, they get a reward for that. Which okay. is your transaction
0: fee? Okay, right, yeah, because that was a bit I, I'd heard a few years ago about you know people mining for Bitcoin. Yeah, and yeah. I'd I hadn't really understood it because I'd just yeah. heard that they were kind of trying to solve these mathematical problems yeah. with their computers. Yeah. in order to create more Bitcoin. Yeah, which didn't quite make sense. Yeah, to me.
1: so so the Bitcoins are released to so the first miner to check everything. Is so there's you know a thousand miners all racing to solve your your challenge. Yeah. So I give you £5 worth of Bitcoin. Okay? Mm-hmm. It goes into a mining pool. Mm-hmm. The Miners pick up the transaction and they verify if Tom has £5 or not. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So, but there's not just one miner, there's a thousand of them. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, you don't want to um, release the transactions too quickly or reward the miners too quickly. So uh, you, if you're running a currency like Bitcoin, you, you want it to be steady-eddy. Okay, so Bitcoin is released every 10 minutes. Okay. And it's set, the algorithm is set for 10 minutes. Right, okay. If you just, imagine if sand was a currency, and you just dumped sand into the market, it would just kind of ruin the marketplace. Yeah. But also, if you held all the sand back and didn't let anyone have it, that would also ruin the market. Mm -hmm. So by releasing it, Bitcoin, every 10 minutes, it keeps the currency stable. Now, to stop people... uh, um, Releasing it too quickly, they create a mathematical problem. Then this is the Achilles' heel of crypto. That mathematical problem. Imagine it's a Sudoku for argument's mm-hmm. sake. It's actually slightly more complicated, but it's like a Sudoku, and the miner has to solve the Sudoku and check Tom's transactions at the same time. Okay. The Sudoku is only there to slow the network down.
0: Okay. Right. That's
1: okay. Good. So it's so it's ten minutes. Yeah. And the first person to solve the Sudoku and check the transactions gets a little reward, okay. which is Bitcoin. Right.
0: Okay. Okay?
1: So the miners are racing, and then you end up with a red queen race where basically, I'll use my computer to Bitcoin mine. And you'll say, well, I'll use my computer, it's slightly bigger, mm-hmm. and I'll use a graphic card or I'll use 10 computers. And, mm-hmm. and suddenly, you've got this arms race of computing power yeah which is essentially wasting energy solving these ridiculous sudoku problems right. that have no value yeah that that whole purpose of which is to slow the network down
0: yeah okay
1: that's old tech right so that's clearly not very green and yeah. not very carbon efficient so the whole industry has been working for many many years to try and come up with better solutions that don't involve damn Sudoku right, okay.
0: challenge, okay.
1: and that's largely been solved now, not by right. Bitcoin, but by most of the other cryptocurrencies.
0: Okay, gotcha. Making sense. It's making sense. So, right, let's just uh, quickly move on to where you are now with these NFTs and because you made the gems. We haven't even touched on the kind of, um, uh, what you call it, the archaeology, the NFT
1: Oh, well, that's quite funny, yeah. So we made the gems uh, in 2018, and um, uh, we bought a load of cryptocurrency called Ethereum to run our vending machine. Yeah, gas. We've got to pay for the gas. Um, We ran out of gas, so we spent, in today's money, the equivalent of a quarter of a million pounds on gas. Ouch. (laughs) But the thing is, we weren't speculating. We were building a vending machine for the future. Yeah. So we would have to have some gas to do that yeah which you pay for in ethereum um anyway we ran out of cash and we basically nobody liked our art nobody uh, liked our ideas nobody liked non-fungible tokens nobody liked blockchain and nobody bought anything so mm. we ran out of money so imagine you've set up a photo gallery Dan, mm. and you're paying for the gallery space mm. and you're paying for the electricity yeah and nobody comes in <laughs> to your gallery and nobody buys anything.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine that.
1: So after a while, (laughs) you run out of cash and motivation, energy, and you switch it off. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And you switch it off with a heavy heart, think, well, that was a bit of fun. Well, you put that, chalk that up to experience.
0: Yeah.
1: And then move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the same time, obviously, COVID hit and the whole world spiraled down the plug hole. So, um, then in that kind of peripathea way, you know, things changed suddenly, and we were discovered. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward to 2021. Okay, we were we were discovered by um, blockchain NFT collectors. Yeah, and because you can't make this up, we were then uh, uh, classified as uh, as antiques, digital antiques. <laughs> okay. Um, things move fast in blockchain. And gaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So four years ago is ancient Jurassic history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, four minutes ago is pretty old. So four <laughs> years is really old. Yeah. That, hence why we're original gangsters. <laughs> and so we were discovered by the archaeologists, okay, the NFT archaeologists. And because the NFT is now going through a boom phase and every man and his dog's minting NFT projects. Yeah. It's very difficult to tell the quality because you're effectively drinking from a fire hydrant. It's just you know hundred thousand images a day of dubious quality. Yeah. So a whole niche areas emerged of NFT archaeology, where just as most people buy furniture at IKEA, some people buy antiques. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But with the antiques, you can be pretty much guaranteed. That they will keep their value. They might even go up in value because mm-hmm. they're scarce. Yeah. Okay. Um, whereas when you buy IKEA furniture, you know you have to almost pay uh, the skip people to take it away. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, a,
0: it's, it's the, not going to be around in two hundred. The
1: each. irony, of course, is they all work. You know, an IKEA yeah. chair will, will keep you off the ground, and so will an antique chair. But some people like antiques. Yeah. And th- this has worked in our favour because obviously. With our diamonds and gem uh, images, Um, if we had made 100,000, they would be quite common. Mm. But because we only made 575, they're very rare. Mm -hmm. So not only have we got an antique, we've got a very rare antique.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Completely by accident because we ran out of cash. (laughs) So we were rediscovered and yes, it's kicked off, which is great. Which is really interesting, um, dynamic, really. Yeah. Um, and the sales of of recent gems has has meant we can fund uh the next project.
0: Okay. Okay. And where is that going to take you?
1: Uh well, we're about to launch um the well fulfill the original roadmap, the 2018 roadmap. Okay. So, we're about to launch uh, some more NFTs that are yeah. all related to the gems. Uh, uh, as we've kind of outlined in our Discord channels and our Twitter channels and so forth. So just um, more experimentation around NFTs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still doing, uh, so we're still a certificate company and we're pushing the boundaries on the NFT stuff and we're still doing digital certificates as well. Mm-hmm. We're doing uh, a whole raft of types of certificates. Right, okay, Yeah. For real. Cool.
0: Well, my knowledge of NFTs has <laughs> increased. Hopefully it's made sense. because I think you've got a really good way of uh, describing it in layman's terms, if that's the right, I don't even know if that's the right term to use, but kind of the Jenga my... analogies and things are, are yeah. useful, I think, because I've never heard it put like that. And it makes a lot of sense when you yeah. put it into something that you can visualize. Like I that. think
1: so. And I think... You know, once you realize that a normal ledger, an uh, Excel spreadsheet, is like a game of Jenga where someone, when you're not looking, can come in and change a block yeah, or remove yeah. a block and you re- might not notice
0: yeah. or
1: just kick the whole block over yeah. you know, and say, well, that didn't happen. Well, actually, yeah. if you've got 20,000 of them in stone, so yeah. yeah, I'll have that on my gravestone use the Jenga analogy. That'd be, yeah, yeah, I like you know, it. Used
0: as long as people realise that the Jenga pieces are stuck together. They're super glued and together. And someone can't and just come in, along. And yeah. <laughs> but even around. if
1: you could do one, you couldn't do all 20,000 at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's there's inbuilt resilience in the network.
0: Yeah, yeah. And everyone's, and the point is that there's thousands of copies of the same Jenga exactly. puzzle. And even if you tried to, Hmm. Hack one, you couldn't hack all the other no. thousands of them around That's the world. That's why it's so. so
1: interesting: is that it's been well thought out, well thought through, mm. and it's a little bit like the internet. You know, people, everyone is now saying, of course, you know, switch the NFTs off, switch the cryptocurrency off. It's a threat to global currency supplies, threat to the U.S. dollar. But um, but you can't switch it off because no one owns it.
0: Yeah. It's like
1: saying, <laughs> who's in charge of the internet? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. well, everyone is, and no one is. You know, yeah. and obviously there are hubs, but uh, like Amazon and so on. But um, you know, the idea that the blockchain can run separate to government. So if you have someone like, uh, like countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe that hyperinflate their currency, you know, if you've put all your savings into a Venezuelan bank or Zimbabwean bank, mm. and then they have this kind of Weimar Republic hyperinflation, you've lost all of your money that you've. Mm. You know, worked hard for your whole life that you want to hand down to your family. Mm. It's all gone. Mm. Okay. But if you put it into cryptocurrency, at least you control it. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the banks, the central government can't take it away from you. Yeah. But what your listeners are probably wanting to know is, um, should you invest in Tom's NFT kids? <laughs> Yes. No. Yes. Maybe.
0: I think at this stage <laughs> you have to say something like, uh, this is not financial advice and I'm not a financial advisor. Uh,
1: I, do I have to say that as well? I think
0: I have to at least say that because you, just, told, you just advised someone heard, to do something.
1: <laughs> I had a very good uh, um, uh, conversation by a senior banker in a, in, a, in a very big bank. Said the amount of money should... This is not financial advice and certainly not this... Just idea, to be clear, this is definitely not financial definitely advice. Definitely not financial advice. In fact, none of this podcast. Has none it, of this. Any no, nothing I ever advice. say is for now and forever. <laughs> is financial advice, uh, but the the person was saying, as a woman, saying that you should invest the exact amount that you would be prepared to go to an ATM, take out, and set fire to. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so there is a chance you could make some money in. NFTs and cryptocurrencies, but there is also a chance that it could go to zero. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, so it's not like short selling where there's an unlimited loss if it goes high. Um, But it it is a highly risky speculative asset and there there are no recovery tools either. So if you lose your private keys, that's a longer conversation, but if you lose your um, toolkit your passwords and things there, there is mm. no uh, backstop there is no um, bank of last resort where you can go crying to the police and the bank yeah, so yeah. if you lose your wallet on the pavement and you lose your credit card, you know, much as we hate banks, they do provide a service, and you yeah. can go to the bank with your ID and get a new bank card yeah, okay, but if you lose your crypto wallet, which is on your computer um there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, sure, gotcha. So, you know, be very careful out there, folks. And, and it is it is fun. It, it, and if you like the art, if you visually, you know, if it's something you would like to print off and own and put on the wall and it's one of one and it's unique and you know the artist and, and you want to support someone, then yeah, fill your boots, you know. But don't go into it to speculate. Mm, okay. That's my advice. That's but it's not good, financial good advice. Good, non-financial advice. It there. is non-financial. <laughs> <laughs> All of my advice is non-financial. Excellent.
0: Well, uh, I'm sitting here, folks, yeah.
1: wrapped in gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, Excellent. Well, thank you very much. You're Tom. welcome. Uh, website again: blockmarktech.com. You're on the Twitter. You're on the LinkedIn. Not that much, but you prefer the Twitter.
1: We're on the Discord.
0: You're on the Discord. so uh, And also gems.blockmarktech.com to see all that yeah. side of things. Twitter, Blockmark Gems. Discord, look you up. don't know what that means. <laughs> blockmark Gems on Discord. Of <laughs> blockmark Gems, yeah. okay. The, the yeah. forward slash is something random. It's an which input, probably makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a link. Okay. OpenSea. Uh, what's OpenSea?
1: OpenSea is the largest online marketplace for NFTs. Uh, so okay. have a look at it. OpenSea, okay. and you have a browse, look at the, you can look at photos, you can look at uh, digital art, you can look at uh, all sorts of NFTs there. It's the okay. number one marketplace in the world online. It's okay. like eBay for, uh, for, for NFTs.
0: Okay, gotcha. Cool. And then Tom Alcott to find a bit more about your uh, your crazy sailing days and things.
1: Yeah.
0: And Medium as well, medium.com forward slash. Yeah, write some Tom
1: blog posts on Alcott. Medium, yeah.
0: Excellent. Brilliant thank you very much thank it's you Dan a, I hope you very interesting
1: I hope you get some good pepper
0: I will I'll do my best I'll think more about my pepper now. <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome cheers Dan. you've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me Dan Barker you can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast if you've enjoyed today's show please head over to iTunes and leave us a review Helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.